It is a beautiful day to be in the house of the Lord together, and it is beautiful to be able to worship the Lord together in unity. I have been looking forward to sharing this sermon with you this week as I've been preparing. It's really a beautiful story, perhaps slightly obscure, but that's what makes it even more interesting, is it's not one that we look at all that often, and yet there are wonderful lessons for us to learn out of the story this morning. So I'm looking forward to sharing that with you. I've been enjoying going through some Old Testament stories in the past months, and I hope you have been enjoying and learning from those as well. So would you now bow with me, and let's ask God's blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word stands forever. We thank you that your word is unchangeable, it is unshakable, and that its truths apply to our lives in all ages and for all generations. And so, Lord, we thank you that we have this firm anchor, that in spite of what we see happening in the world around us, in spite of the fact that so many want to turn away from your word, your ways, and your truth, we have this unshakable truth as the foundation of our lives. We thank you, Lord, that from your word, we have the guiding light for every decision, great or small. And thank you, Lord, that Your word is not just something that speaks in the past, but it speaks in the present. And it speaks to our hearts even this morning by your Holy Spirit. And so we welcome that work here today. I pray, Lord, that you would cut through the distractions that we've brought with us this morning. I pray that you would help us to set those aside and to focus on what you have for us. I pray, Lord, that you would do your work. Speak through me, your servant, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The young man awoke with a start. His heart was still pounding in his chest. He could feel the cold sweat on his forehead. The terrible dream was one that he had experienced many times before. In the dream, it was always the same. He was a little boy, only five years old, lying peacefully in his bed. When suddenly someone is yelling, The army's been routed. The princes have been slain. The king is dead. People can be heard running this way and that, and then a voice calls out, Save the prince! Get him out of here! Quickly, he is snatched out of bed. The familiar voice of his nurse trembles with fear and urgency as she utters one single word, Run! And then they are running, running, always running, running for what seemed an eternity, running, sensing that whatever was behind them, whatever was chasing them, was gaining ground. And just when it seems they're about to be caught, the dream always ended the same way. He would trip, fall, and be flying through the air. And then just before hitting the ground, he would awake, drenched in cold sweat. Sitting up, the young man winced in pain as he looked down at his legs. The sight of them came with the grim reminder that the nightmare from his childhood was all too real. His legs were badly twisted shriveled and scarred from where the bones had protruded through the flesh. Dull, throbbing pain was now his constant companion. That one fateful night had left him scarred, marred, and alone in every way imaginable. Not only had he become a cripple that night, but he had lost his grandfather, his father, his home, and his royal status all in one foul swoop. He had gone from being a prince living in the royal palace to a fugitive hiding away in the wilderness, forced to live in constant fear that the new king would discover him, 
seek to eliminate the last remaining member of his grandfather's royal bloodline and have him killed. And so there he was, a young man forced to live out his painful existence in this sad little town of Lodabar. Lodabar was the backwoods of the world, an utterly desolate and remote place in the wilderness east of the Jordan River. The meaning of Lodabar described the place perfectly, a place of no pasture. In other words, someone could spend all day scavenging for a single handful of grass with which to feed the flocks and still come up wanting. It was an utterly desolate and barren place. Quite simply, Lodabar was a dead end. The kind of place that if it just suddenly ceased to exist, the world would hardly take notice, let alone care. Lodabar, the place spoke as a perfect analogy for what Mephibosheth's life had become. A dead end, useless, and of no more worth to anyone than the dogs that scavenge for food in the streets. The little boy who had once lived in a palace and dreamed of becoming the king of Israel was now nothing more than the cripple of Lodabar. That is the tragic tale of a young man named Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the grandson of King Saul. And we find those details of Mephibosheth's story in 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 4, where we are given the insight of how he became a cripple that fateful night when news came that Saul and his father Jonathan had been killed, his nurse snatches him up, and as they are running, fleeing, they have a terrible fall, and he is crippled for life. Now, realistically, being the cripple of Lodabar is where his story should have ended. In fact, the way the world operated at that time, and probably in many ways still operates today, is that his story could have easily ended with him being murdered in order to completely eradicate any potential competition for King David's throne. That was the way of the world. If you wanted to take a throne, you had to eliminate the rival's bloodlines, for someone could take that prince, hide him away, and at another time raise up an army in his name and take the throne away from you, saying, this bloodline is more legitimate than yours. And so here he is, the last surviving family member, the last legitimate heir to King Saul's throne. And by all rights, he should have been a target for assassination. In fact, that is exactly what happened to his uncle with another great name, Ishbosheth. You got Mephibosheth, and you've got Uncle Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth. In 2 Samuel chapter 4, verses 5 to 8, if you care to look at that story, Another one of those great Old Testament stories where we see reality is not very nice sometimes. Here, his own men, trying to gain David's favor, they come into the house as though they're just running errands for the day. And as their master is sleeping in his bed, they come and with daggers stab him in the stomach and murder him in his own bed. They then bring his decapitated head to King David, hoping to win his favor. This is what happened to Mephibosheth's own uncle. And so quite literally, he is facing the threat of having his head served up on a silver platter. That was how the world was in those days. But now as we stop and consider this tragic tale, the craziest part of all of this is that this happened through no fault of his own. What had he done to deserve any of this? He was just a boy, living his life as a five-year-old would in the king's palace. 
a prince of the nation, waiting his turn to ascend to the throne. He had done nothing wrong. So what was happening to him? Well, quite literally, the sins of the fathers were being visited upon his life. From the age of five and onward, he suffered for the consequences of Saul's sins. Here he is, simply a child who, like so many others, is caught up and destroyed by the decisions of others beyond his control. Is it fair? No, it's not fair. We would look at the injustice and we would even weep if we were capable of it. It's not fair, but it is reality. The far-reaching consequences of sin is a reality in every last person's life. The Bible describes this as the generational curse of sin, with the consequences being handed off from one generation to the next. Perhaps one of the most terrible and practical examples of this is a child who was born with fetal alcohol syndrome. They had absolutely no say in the matter. They did absolutely nothing to deserve this. They did nothing wrong. It was their mother who, choosing to drink while pregnant, has now passed on this terrible consequence to this child for the rest of their life. Is it fair? No, it is terribly unfair. But it is reality. In Romans chapter 5 and verses 12 to 14, Paul describes the consequences of the generational curse of sin like this. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died. From the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit command of God as Adam did, they all still died. This is the terrible consequence of sin. Adam's sin and rebellion against God by disobeying in the garden has now been passed along under death, one generation to the next, right down to us today. This is the essence of how the curse of sin operates. Through no fault of our own, we have all been born under its curse, and we have all suffered from its effects. Is it fair? No, we could say it's not fair. It was not our choice to eat the fruit in the garden. But our great forefather chose to do it, and so we are living under the consequences of his sin. And so, just like for Mephibosheth, it is reality. We are born under the curse of sin passed along from our forefathers. And so, spiritually speaking, just like Mephibosheth living under the consequence of his grandfather's sin... We, too, are born spiritually a cripple of Lodabar. We are born spiritually living in a wasteland of sin apart from God, and we live under its consequences. We are crippled by the sins of our parents and forefathers. We are crippled by circumstances beyond our control. We are crippled by our fears. We are crippled by our guilt. We are crippled by our pain. We are crippled by our own selfishness, and our own sinful desires and appetites, which wage war against our own souls. Radio personality, Paul Harvey. Some of you probably grew up listening to Paul Harvey every noon hour. I know I did. You've probably heard this well-known story before, but it bears repeating as it gives an example of what our own appetites can do to oneself. 
He tells the story of how the Inuit hunter kills a wolf, one of the ways he does so. First, the hunter coats his knife blade with animal blood, and he allows it to freeze. Then he adds another layer of blood and another, each layer freezing until the sharp blade is completely concealed by frozen blood. Next, the hunter fixes his knife firmly into the ground with the blade up. And when a wolf discovers the bait, he scents the blood, he likes the smell, he gives it a lick. He likes the taste, and he begins lapping at it. He begins to lick faster and faster, more vigorously, lapping until the blade edge is bare. And at this point, his appetite for blood has become so strong, he does not notice the razor-sharp sting of the naked blade on his own tongue. Nor does he recognize the instant at which his insatiable thirst is actually being satisfied, not by the blood frozen on the blade, but by his own blood. His appetite just craves more until the dawn finally finds him dead, frozen in the snow, having bled out from his own desires. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. These things aren't just passive things that we engage in. Sin and all of the consequences of it are actually waging war against our souls. When we feel that inner turmoil, we feel that, that dryness, that deadness, that, that wondering, why do I feel this terrible guilt or shame or just nothing inside of me? These are the consequences of sin. And they wage war against our soul. And so often when we get into this place... We feel that despair, we feel that utter hopelessness creeping into our souls, and so we try to push it away, because who wants to live like that? And so we try all sorts of things to push it away. We try to distract ourselves with money, entertainment, work, sexual pleasures, and distractions of all kinds. But those things only work for so long, because so many of those things are only continuing the war against our souls. And so we paste on smiles, we tell everyone that we're fine, but the reality is that inwardly, in our inner man, in our soul, we are withering away in the spiritual wasteland of Lodabar. And like Mephibosheth, we are completely helpless to do anything about it, because we're crippled. We lack the necessary strength to save ourselves. We need help. This is where we turn now to 2 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 1. And we see an amazing encounter of a king and a cripple. This is where Mephibosheth's tragic story takes an unexpected twist. David is sitting in his palace one day. Everything is finally peaceful in the kingdom. All of his enemies have been defeated. He has had victory. God has granted him victory after victory. His enemies have all fled before him, and he is enjoying one of those rare moments of peace in his entire life. Remember, David was a man of war. He spent more time in war and running and hiding than anyone else. The moments of peace in his life were very few, but this was one of them. And as he sits down and he enjoys this, he becomes reflective, and he thinks back over his past, everything that God's hand has led him safely through, and he comes upon the memory of his good friend, Jonathan. Jonathan. King Saul's son, next in line to the throne, who befriended him. In fact, they became more than friends. They became what we would call best friends. 
willing to die for one another. And so we recall here going back to where Jonathan actually intervened between his father and David, and he helped in saving David's life from Saul's wrath. Now think about that. Next in line to the throne, disrespecting, disobeying your own father by protecting his enemy from him is not a good idea if you want to take the throne. But for his love for David, Jonathan willingly did this. He protected David. And so now, years later, David is remembering the covenant that he made with his dear friend Jonathan. He remembers that that vow that they made to each other to be kind and show mercy to each other's families, no matter what happened. And so he asks one of his servants, Is there anyone left in the line of Saul to whom I can show mercy, to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? In verses 3 to 4, he is informed that Jonathan had a crippled son living in the land of Lodabar. So David then sends out his men to bring him to the palace in Jerusalem. In verse 6, we read that when Mephibosheth, son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. And David said simply, Mephibosheth. What a greeting! He doesn't say servant, he doesn't say cripple, he says his name, and I love how the Bible has an exclamation point at the end of it. He's never met this young man before in his life, but I just feel this sense of David looking at this young man and just feeling love for him. He just says his name, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth, we have to picture him, is prostrate on the floor, his forehead is to the ground, and he simply says, your servant. Now, I want you to just pause and consider for a moment. What must have been going through Mephibosheth's mind at this moment? Remember what we said earlier about the way of the world at that time and about how bloodlines were eradicated. I suspect, I can't say for certain, but I suspect that Mephibosheth believed that he was finished. I suspect that he believed that this was it. This was the end of his miserable existence. And if we look ahead at verse 8, we see that even after David's promise to show him kindness, it says this, Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should take notice of a dead dog like me? That is what Mephibosheth thought of himself. A dead dog. He's not even just a dog, he's a dead dog. That's what he thinks of himself. That is his opinion of his life. Now, just to clarify that, just so we're clear, in that culture, dogs were not beloved family pets like they are today. Dogs weren't dressed up in little t-shirts and booties to go for a walk in the wintertime. No, 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 that's something we invented. Back then, dogs were, the, were scavengers. They were not kept as pets. The only dogs that were used in service were for hunting or for warfare. All the others were just scavengers that people tried to stay away from. They might have disease. They'd be scrawny. They'd be running through the streets, just picking through the garbage. And so they were something unclean, something that people just didn't like. Get them out of here. Kill them if you have to. That's what people thought of dogs in that day. And so on top of that, Mephibosheth calls himself not just a dog, but a dead dog. He considered himself already all but put out of his misery. That is how he had come to view his life. He thought, I'm nothing more than this. So why would the king, why would he who is sitting on the throne take any interest in me other than to put me out of my misery? That, I believe, 
is what was running through Mephibosheth's mind as he lay prostrate before the king. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like your life just held no meaning? You just felt like in your circumstances, in your misery, in whatever pain you were going through, that your life was just like a dead dog. It held no meaning, no significance. That if someone were to just put you out of your misery, no one would notice or even care. The odds are that some of you have felt like that. Some of you have felt that death seemed like an escape. Something to look forward to. Something that maybe even held hope. But even if you have not been in that dark place, we each come before God, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, as cripples, deserving nothing more than his judgment. But that is where we find, exactly in that place, face down on the floor, before the king, we find something wonderful. And we see it in the story of Mephibosheth. Here on the floor, for the first time in his life, he is shown mercy and he is given grace. He has never once before been shown that. He has never once before thought he deserved that. But it wasn't about his deserving. It wasn't about having been shown it. It was that the king delighted in showing it to him that day. In verse 7 we read, Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. The remaining verses, 9 to 13, tells us that David kept his word, and not only did he restore him with all of Saul's property, he also assigned him servants to work the land and to care for his household. But the most beautiful line in all of it comes at the end of verse 11. Here we read, So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's own sons. Wow! That is not only being shown mercy. That is not just throwing the dead dog a scrap or, or giving him a word of kindness. That is not only restoring his name and his place in the world. That is adoption. Like one of his own sons. He was no longer the cripple of Lodabar. No longer nothing more than a dead dog. He was an adopted son of the king with a place at the royal table. The prince who had become a cripple was now a prince once more. And just when it seemed that all hope was lost, grace found him. And by grace, the king sought him out, showed him mercy, lavished him with kindness, and gave him the honored place of a son around his own table. My friends, this is the beautiful thing about God's word and the message of the gospel. This is a beautiful picture, a foreshadowing of what God has done for each one of us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our king of kings, before whom we bow, deserving nothing more than judgment, has instead shown us mercy and grace. There we were, powerless under the curse of sin, cripples, unable to help ourselves, still living as enemies of God, and he takes the initiative to seek us out. We are spiritually in the land of Lodabar, and he looks for us. And he sent out his only son, the Lord Jesus, to rescue us 
from the wilderness of sin. Rescue us from our sinful desires, from our despair, from our shame and guilt and fear and self-loathing. All of the pain and the consequences of sin of our own lives and the sin and the consequences of others' lives. He brings us out of it so that we can be restored and we can sit at the place of honor as a son or daughter around his table. And so where you or others may see nothing more than a cripple or a dead dog, God sees a child that he loved so much that he willingly gave his own son to die for our sins in our place. So let me just tell you, it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how far into the wilderness of Lodabar your life has gone. There is no place in this world that is too far to go beyond the reach of God's grace. His mercy is greater than our greatest sin. And so he seeks us out in our wilderness. He says, come, come to Jerusalem, come to my palace, come to my throne, and I will show you mercy. Come to me and I will give you the place of a son or daughter around his table. And so the wonderful thing is this invitation is extended to every last person in this entire world, which includes us. And so, like Mephibosheth, all we have to do is receive the invitation and join the king around his table. There's a great story that's told during the Spanish-American War of Clara Barton, a famous nurse of that time, considered one of the forerunners of modern medicine today. Clara Barton was overseeing the work of the Red Cross in Cuba. And one day, Colonel Theodore Roosevelt, who would later become a president of the United States, Colonel Roosevelt came to her and wanted to buy food for his sick and wounded Rough Riders. But she refused to sell him any. Roosevelt was perplexed. She was known for her mercy and generosity. Why wouldn't she sell supplies to him? His men needed the help, as she could see, and he was prepared to pay her out of his own personal funds. When he asked someone why he could not buy the supplies, he was told, Colonel, you can't buy them. They're not for sale. Just ask, and she'll give them to you. A smile broke out on Roosevelt's face. Now he understood. The provisions were not for sale. All he had to do was simply ask, and they would be freely given. It's the same way with God's grace. It's not for sale. All we have to do is ask. All we have to do is receive, and God will give them. And so if you're listening to this today, and you sense that God is speaking to your heart, let me invite you to make things right with him. Receive his gift. It's a free one. It is the most beautiful gift this world has ever known or ever will know, the gift of salvation. You can quite simply do that by confessing your sins, confessing that you're helpless, lost in your sins without him, and then make things right by asking for his grace, asking for his forgiveness, and placing your faith and trust in him alone to save you and to give you salvation. And so, this is the beautiful thing about being in the land of Lodabar is when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords reaches out to us and makes us an object of grace, an object of mercy, and all we have to do is receive. And now I want to make a second invitation this morning to all of you here today and those listening who have already made this decision. 
You've received God's mercy and grace. You've come out of the land of Lodabar. You're, you're already around God's throne, uh, around his table, in his throne room. There's something that I believe God wants me to tell you. Never take your place at his table for granted. Never take it for granted. Never forget what it cost him to rescue you. Never become proud thinking that you somehow earned your way there or that you deserve it more than someone else. Never become entitled in your thinking, thinking that somehow because of your your piety, your religious good works, your church attendance, that you deserve this grace more than someone who out in the streets, out in the world, is living what we would call mired in sin. Never be deceived into thinking that your grace that you've received is somehow more deserving than the person next to you. Never take it for granted that God has reached out his hand to you personally, crippled, lost in sin, and has shown you mercy. And finally, never return to the wilderness of Lodabar. Never go back to that place once you've left it. And so too, never stop being grateful for what he has done for you. Because your place in mine as a child of the king is only and will ever be solely because of his wonderful mercy and grace. And so all honor, all glory, and all praise belong only unto him. May we give him what he deserves. And may our lives be reflections of the grace and mercy which we have received. For if we have become objects of grace, may we, like King David, also be givers of grace. May we go home today and reflect upon who in my life could I show the mercy and grace and kindness that God has shown to me like David showed to Mephibosheth. Who is there in your realm, who is there in your world, who, like David... You can reach out to and show kindness, show extravagant mercy to. Because that is what God is inviting us into. A place around his table means now go out and do likewise. Be like me, be like the king, and show mercy just as I have shown it unto you. So now may our hearts be moved again by God's beauty. May our souls be stirred to worship him more deeply. May our minds be strengthened day by day in his truth. And may our feet be energized to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to others. For his glory. Amen. Father God, we give you all glory, all praise, and all honor for this wonderful gift of salvation. This free gift of grace that you have given to us. That while we were still lost in the land of Lodabar, lost in our sins in a desolate and barren place, O Lord, there you sought us out, you reached out a hand of mercy, and you drew us into yourself, into your love, into your forgiveness, and into your salvation. We give you praise. Thank you, O God. I pray, Lord, that we would never for a minute of our lives take this wonderful gift for granted. I pray, O Lord, that there would never be another moment in our lives that we would sing a song to you with half-heartedness. 
I pray that we would never do another act of service only halfway or without enthusiasm. I pray, O God, that we would so be transformed by this wonderful gift that you have given us that our lives would bubble over with enthusiasm, with joy, and with power because of what you have done for us. O Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you pour it out into this church? Would you pour it out into our lives for your glory, O Lord? We put aside half-heartedness. We put aside double-mindedness. We fix our eyes, Lord, upon you and the grace and the mercy that you have shown us in the cross. You have lavished your love upon us. May we never take it for granted, O Lord. Pour out your spirit in our lives. Pour out your love that we may show love unto others. For your glory we pray it, Lord. And for the salvation and mercy of many more who are still trapped, living out their existence in the land of Lodabar. O God, wake us up mobilize us, your people and your church, for your glory and for your name we pray it, O Lord Jesus. May it be so. Amen.